Einstein and Sock Monkey, Episode 7, All Mobile All the Time, recorded April 5th, 2011. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at audibletrial.com slash Einstein. Over 85,000 titles to choose from for your iPod, iPhone, MP3 player, or Kindle. <laughs> There's a whole sock monkey culture connected to all this. I believe that Einstein was a lazy procrastinator like me. Yeah, but can you guys tell me what this has to do with um, web design? <laughs> Welcome to Einstein and Sock Monkey, the podcast for web geeks and website owners. I am Steve Martin, one of the hosts. And I'm Ron Zasadinsky. And how have you been, Ron? It's been a while since we've been. It has been. Everybody probably thinks we dropped off the face of the planet, but uh, <laughs> we just had a short hiatus regrouping here and uh, uh, back on track now with some regular publication of Einstein and Sock Monkey, and uh, I've been doing very well. How cool. about you? Oh, awesome. Yeah, I just um, got back from the IA Summit last week. Mm-hmm. How was that? I about, about that today. It was awesome. It was first time for me going to the IA Summit, and so I partly knew what to expect because I had listened to the past two years worth of audio. Okay. Oh, that's a good idea. From the Boxes and Arrows website. It has a, the podcast for audio, all the audio for the past couple of years, maybe the past three years. I'm not sure. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I didn't go, and I would love to hear yeah. a few of the talks that you got to participate in. And I'm not sure. Apparently, they're, gonna, they're thinking about putting the podcast for this year's IA Summit someplace else, so stay oh. tuned. We'll make sure to announce that on the podcast when we find out. But um, the there were about 450, 500 people-ish. Okay. Um, it was in Denver, which was nice. So I just drove, yeah. drove back and forth every day instead of paying like the low, low rate of $160 a night. Yeah, that's a pretty good rate actually for a conference hotel. <laughs> it, it is, I know. Which is not still, good. Yeah. It hurts. Um, but yeah, it was it was really neat. I got to, uh, I went to the um, two days worth of workshops beforehand. Mm-hmm. And then the, the three days of the summit and got to meet some awesome people. Um, got to meet uh, Kenneth Bowles, who we're going to be looking at his book later on. And um, Jared Spool and et cetera, et cetera. Lots of really cool folks who I read a lot about and I've heard a lot of things that mm-hmm. they say. And I've listened to them talking about stuff for it seems like years and finally get to meet him. It's, it's, it's really nice. So, and I got a couple great interviews out of it, too. Awesome. We're, we're going to be looking today at, we're going to have an interview with Josh Clark. Um, he's a, he wrote the book Tapworthy. Yeah, I heard, make, I've heard about his book yeah. and actually I have it on order from Amazon so I can read it. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I took a, a full day workshop with him on how to oh. do mobile design. That was really neat. And then I also got an interview with um, Kevin Hoffman, who is the creative director, no, sorry, experience director for Happy Cog. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I got to chatting with him and said, you know what? I ought to interview you. So, <laughs> yeah. But it, he's a, he's an awesome guy, and it was fun to... So we'll have that on, an, on a future podcast. Good, okay. Good conversation. More along the lines of kind of the business side of things a little bit more. So 
Awesome. I look forward to that too, because I'm always interested in the business side of uh, yeah. what we do. And, and I just got back from uh, an event apart up in Seattle. So uh, was that? that was awesome. So I was with some other happy cog folks like uh, Mr. Zeldman and, yeah. and some others. Um, and that was great. It was a good three-day conference. Um, really had a great time up there. Um, uh, props out to uh, Extensus because they actually paid for my conference ticket, which is well, pretty right. sweet. You won it, right? I did. This is the power of social media, right? I saw <laughs> I saw a tweet about uh, you know you could comment on their blog post about the conference, and they would randomly select a winner from everybody who commented on the blog post. I was like, heck, I'll go comment. So I did, yeah. and. A couple of weeks later, a week later, whatever, I got a phone call and an email, and I had won the the three day That's conference great. pass. So, um, I love going to the event apart conferences anyway, and uh, I really wanted to go to the one in Seattle because Luke Robluski was doing a one day seminar on mobile right. and mobile design. So, um, look forward to discussing that with you. And yeah, it was, I remember it was it was funny the the day I, I got out of the mobile workshop with Josh Clark, and I saw that you tweeted. Just got out of a mobile workshop. All right. Blueski. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so totally in sync. Yeah. Thousands totally. of miles away. Exactly. Right. And oh, I, I forgot to mention to you, I don't know if I told you or not. I I was a I, one of the workshops I went to was with Kevin Chang. He hmm. is the um I hadn't really heard of him before, but he I, is I don't know who that the is. product manager for Twitter.com. Product manager. Hmm. So he manages the website. Like they oh. have a product manager that manages the I, iPhone app. Okay. They, they refer to it as okay. the web client. Right, yeah. And, uh, okay. Um, Using fancy terms and stuff. Yeah, and so throughout the whole, <laughs> throughout the whole workshop, he, his example, basically how to manage the project, was the re- recent redesign of Twitter.com. So he, Very cool. I didn't get to connect with him. Just, you know, conferences are crazy. Lots of people. Of course, yeah. But he, he told me in an email I just got yesterday, he's like, we should do the Skype interview sometime because he Wonderful. really wants to talk to us about it. And awesome. So oh, I love him. that. It was awesome hearing kind of the inside bits of Twitter. I bet. How, how it works and how this... Any good stories? Thing, a lot of Any great... scuttlebutt? <laughs> <laughs> he had a couple slides that I could not take a photo of. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, so no, I mean, nothing, nothing like earth shattering. But, you know, Embarrassing, just, perhaps? <laughs> no. no? Uh. Just kind of how their internal processes and stuff. He, I see. He was using it as an example for the workshop, but didn't want the whole world to know about it, which is understandable. Anyway, so that's, that's uh, upcoming sometime as well. Wonderful. Cool. Well, I think we're planning to record on uh, every two weeks, so we should right. be publishing roughly every two weeks we're going to work out um you know stay tuned we will work out the exact publishing schedule but the plan is for it to be regular every two weeks and we've got uh you know we've been planning ahead and we got some good material lined up for features and interviews so um we should be rolling along regularly at least we sure hope so yeah because we love doing it and uh i'm ready to keep going we're also planning to occasionally have some guest hosts so Mm -hmm. if either steve or myself are not here particular episode um We'll have someone stand in, and we also may have you know a third person on board occasionally to keep it interesting, keep mm-hmm. the variety going, get smart minds here instead Definitely. of us, you know. Cool. Well, how about we uh, head on with the news? Okay. So I have the the first news item I've got for today was a very interesting article that caught my eye on Read Write Web uh, that Google joins the NFC forum and ditches QR codes. So we could subtitle this QR codes are dead because Google says so. And uh, <laughs> I don't, I 
you don't know about that. I was kind of shocked because QR codes are a pretty new thing. You know, you're just starting to see people put them on like business cards. And obviously, there's some advertising going on with QR codes. Um, so for Google to move away from them is pretty amazing. Uh, at this early stage. So the uh, official policy here is users will no longer find unique QR codes in their Places accounts. So as you may know that um, if you have a Google Places account, uh, they had mailed stickers for your storefront with QR codes on them to you know thousands and thousands of businesses. Yeah, I see all the, those all over the all place. All over. And they say now that they're exploring new ways to enable customers to interact with the business from their mobile phones. So what they're moving to, apparently this is already true. I haven't gone to check, but uh, apparently you can't get the QR codes anymore. And where they're moving toward is called uh, NFC, which stands for Near Field Communication. And it's a wireless technology that enables data exchanges over short distances. So it's very similar to the way RFID tags work, that you need uh, some transmitting device that is the power source. And uh, the tag would be passive. And within uh, four centimeters, if you wave your phone that's equipped with this capability, the signal coming out of the phone is enough energy to cause the tag to transmit its data to the phone. And um, and then your phone would have that information and, and do whatever. So they could encode, you know, geolocation information or other information about the store. <clears throat> so pretty interesting. Um, and so it's a more active method here, you know, and, and Honestly, scanning the QR codes is a little tricky, right? I mean, I've done it many times, but you've got to get the app up, and then you've got to aim your camera at it and get it kind of centered and let it read it. Yeah, it's there's not, mul multiple steps. Yeah, it's yeah. multiple steps. It's not that big of a deal. But yeah. here, I don't know if you have to turn on an app or not to activate the near-field communication part of the phone, but you just wave your phone in front of this thing, and then your phone would receive the data. So it sounds a lot simpler. Uh, you don't have to aim anything. You just wave it really close by. And apparently the technology allows for two-way communication that two NFC devices could potentially exchange data. So maybe that's what they're thinking. And do you know anything more about this? You're nodding. Yeah, well, I, I did some research actually completely unrelated at work ah, a couple months ago about, about near-field communication devices and what there are. And there's a I came across an article that, um, that uh, there, there's a whole, few hotels in Sweden that – Instead of giving you a key code or key card, I mean, if you don't have a phone, they'll give you a key card. But um, they just give you a code for your phone if your ha phone has an NFC chip in it, and that's your key key for your room. Wow! You just wave it in front of your door, and that's it opens cool. Your room. And that way, they know. I mean, they know anyway. But that way, there's information in your phone about it, and they can email it to you, so you don't have to even stop at the front desk. Interesting. You can just get your key on your uh, phone and walk right in. So even different ways for stalkers to break into your room. Great. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and I understand they're heading in the direction of using this as a mobile wallet. And so that makes yeah. a lot of sense um, that people would be looking at this now. Well, it's a little bit like the RFID. I mean, it's a different kind of technology, but right. it's a little bit like RFD. Like, you know, a lot of people for work have key cards that they wave in front of a deal and it unlocks the thing. But that's more of a, there's a lot less data that can be transmitted with RFID than with NFC because it is two-way. RFID is can not. Be. Right, right. Or, yeah, it can be. Mm -hmm. And when I first heard this, it was at the IA Summit, and a lot of people brought it up because, you know, it had to do with, you know, the way people interact with stuff, and that's what it's all about. But I, I don't know. I think I think this is, is a play by Google to – it's an Android play. I it really does sound think. like it because they're building it into, I guess, the Android operating system already has some of this capability built in. It does. And, and I think, there I are think couple, one of their phones now has yeah, the hardware yeah, capabilities. There's a couple of handsets out there that have mm -hmm. NFC in it already. Right. And there's, 
you know, rumors back and forth whether or not the next iPhone is going to have it in it. Oh, wow. But they're, they are actively pushing to get everybody, if you have an Android phone that you're making, it needs to have NFC in it. I see. So, you know, Google, you know, makes sense. Yeah, it's a differentiator if not everybody else is doing it. And, you know, the, the mobile wallet thing makes a lot of sense to me because, uh, you know, the sooner you know that's not going to be long until we can wave our phones in front of things and pay pay for things. I mean, already there's QR code methods for that, like at Starbucks, right? If you're a Starbucks frequent buyer card guy, yep. you can they give you a QR code that goes on your phone. They just scan that at the mm-hmm. register, and you pay pay that way for your yeah. purchase. So this makes even more sense. Um, anyway, interesting to see the way the technologies are emerging. And uh, you heard it here first, folks. QR codes are dead, so give them up. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Let me have my moment but of glory. It, it is kind of one of those, if Google says it, it's not going to happen, then a lot of people give it up without even thinking. Right. So, and we'll see. Oh, we'll see. I'm sure it'll still be. Lots of QR codes going on for a while. But. So do you have a news item? Yeah. Um, the, there's a blog. I've recommended this blog in the past, 90percentofeverything.com. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, Harry Brignall, a guy over in, I believe he's also in um, Bristol. Everybody in the UX world lives in Bristol, apparently. Um. He has an article entitled, it's F asterisk, asterisk K after that. I'm not sure what that means. No, I have no idea. I get the impression that he's not a fan of the capture. I'm not, you know. Anyway, what he says is, uh, I thought that was a very interesting uh, thing he brought to light. And this is something and Maybe that we I, should just mention, hopefully everybody knows what a captcha is, right? But it's the thing at the end of a form with right, those with, scrambled characters exactly. that are hard to read so that robots don't fill out the form. Right. That's what right. we're talking it's, about. It's an anti-spam measure. Right. And, and also kind of an anti-denial uh, of service attack. Because mm-hmm. if, if some robot hits your site a, a billion times a minute, it's going to bring your server down. Um, so they may not be spamming you, but you know, you get the point. But um, so I had thought about this as as far as the user experience slash conversion ability, right? And yeah, problems that may arise with this. Because sure, I mean, captures are definitely an impediment to filling out yeah, forms. Right? Every single one of us has had an issue with a dumb oh, captcha that doesn't course. make any sense. I mean, and those of us that are fully abled, right? We can see and think and type clearly easily, right? And yet. I, I probably get what twenty percent of the time, twenty maybe one out of twenty times you get the code wrong, or maybe it's more often than that for me. I don't know. But. Yeah, and they seem to be getting uh, probably because spammers uh, bots are getting smarter. They seem to be getting harder to read. Right. Um, and reCAPTCHA, who happens to be owned by Google, hmm. um, is one of the most popular because it's a free sys service, and it's always the ones you see the two words that look like they've been scanned out of a book because right. they have been. Right. And. Um, so anyway, his point with this article is to just bring to light how bad a CAPTCHA is for your site for conversions. Okay. Now, to be fair, he only has uh, data from one website that his, a guy gave to him. Okay. So but it's, take it's it with a grain of salt. One yeah, example. It's one example, but it's kind of one of those one examples that, you're, that totally you know, turns a light on your head, and you're like, I totally don't doubt that. It's probably that across the across the board. Uh-huh. But he says that um, with the design that they had conversion rate of roughly 48% with a recaptcha at the bottom okay. of the form. Okay. And they removed the recaptcha and it boosted the conversion rate to 64%. That's a pretty major That's difference. That's a 33% increase right massive yep that is and massive if you can do that that's that's huge. so what are they doing to prevent spam then 
Well, there's some things I had never heard of before, such as a honeypot field. Have you heard of this? I've heard of them, but I don't know how that works. What it is is a is a field in the form that, and in the HTML, it looks like a normal field, an input field. But with CSS, you just tag that field and display none. So you just hide it. Okay, so it's not visible to the user, but a bot. The, the bot thinks it's a field. I'm going to throw some random text in there. So if there's any text in there at all, you reject the form. Exactly. Okay. And so... And y- probably helps to make it a commonly named yeah, label right it, if you, if last it, name yeah <laughs> if, all you, if you have like e- email address comment right. and and a subject line which is How a very common one sql injection here yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, but just like name it state right. or first name mm-hmm. or something that is common bots will fill it in the only problem with that though and a lot of the guys in the comments on this uh, post Said if you are using a screen reader, if you're blind, it's going to read. You're going to see that. Oh, so there, if you look decreases all, the usability for it, it decreases the accessibility. Accessibility, excuse yeah. me. Yeah. So there are other ways to do it as far as um, time stamp or time code matching. Hmm. A robot will fill out the form in like Instantly. a half a second, right? And a person takes a few a few seconds at least, right? So that's another way to do it, but. So there's a lot of stamps the first to the last field filled out or yeah, something. Yeah, it's a really oh. short article. So okay. I read the article, but there's a lot in the comments. People going back and forth saying this this is a good idea if but, you did this mm-hmm. as well. Watch out for the accessibility, things like that. So huh. definitely something to think about if you have a website that has any kind of a captcha on it. Um, like on the the other option, somebody says is just manually troll through the spam, which is right. something you could do. But I think the, the best point about this whole thing is we've got to figure out some way to maybe avoid the spam but not make the user responsible. Because he has he has the example that if I have a store and you walk in, I don't make you mop the floor because the last guy you know, <laughs> threw up all over the floor. You Good know, point, that's my kind of graphic, job. but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's my job to do that, not yours. I shouldn't sure. force my customers to do sure. something that I should pre- figure out. Make everybody else try to prevent the spam just because they're spammers. Yeah, if you can certainly do it in a more subtle way so that you're not impacting users. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Totally. Yeah. Hmm, very interesting. Now, that's a really good discussion because I hate those captures. And, uh, you know, we've taken to doing uh, more something easier for humans, like just a simple question, what's 2 plus 2? So we're looking for one value, the number right. 4 in that field. And you might have a small pool of questions, like four of them, that are randomly served so that, um, you know, if a robot figured it out, it's not just putting in four and spamming you anyway. Um, yeah. So there are some other simpler techniques, but I like this a lot. If you could just get rid of the capture altogether. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Uh, let's see. My next news item and my last news item is uh, relating to mobile. So uh, very, this is very interesting and relates directly to, to what it takes to maintain mobile code. Uh, so Facebook um, has just announced that they are consolidating their mobile website. So this is not their apps. This is their mobile website to just one website. And apparently they had uh, two. So that's not that many. So this is a very illustrative article. It says a lot. Um, so they had touch.facebook.com for smartphones and m, as in mobile, m.facebook.com for feature phones that had touchscreen interfaces. And... Um, You'd, have, you know, you'd go to the one or the other uh, if you knew to do that. Um, but they said they are abandoning that, and they're going to put everything into just one website. So you go to – now it's m.facebook.com for the mobile site. Of course, you get redirected there automatically if you go to facebook.com from a mobile device. It's smart enough to figure that out. 
Um, but they said that the reason they're doing this is that having to maintain multiple mobile websites has stifled its ability to innovate um, because it takes too long to build new features for multiple code bases. And we're talking two code bases. And Facebook is a pretty good-sized company. I think they have some funding. Uh, so it's not like they lack for the number of programmers on staff. So I think this is a very telling piece of information for all of us who do mobile development, um, just of the challenge, the challenges involved and the costs involved of maintaining multiple code bases for mobile websites. Uh, it's a big commentary on that. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts. Well, yeah, that, but... I, it kind of make, brings me back to the... Uh... The workshop with Josh Clark, one of the things he mentioned, I'm scanning through my notes to see if I can find it. Oh, okay. Is the, no, how many code bases Google alone has for its apps? Oh, yeah, it's that would be interesting. like iOS and Android. Right. It's something like 30 code bases, 30 different builds, essentially. For, e for, for their app, app. app that Google owns, right? Yeah, and so it may, it may be a lot more for, um, well, course with a this you're just talking about the website we're just talking about the website yes, not that's, even the ass so, so, so that's right but that's but that's what it relates to right is i'm sure we'll talk about this in our discussion in a few minutes here but uh um you know do you, the trade one of the trade-offs with the app meaning the native app version like the app you download from the itunes store the mobile uh, android marketplace is of course you have a different code base for each platform that you're developing for and there's at least 10 mobile OSs out there, certainly at least three or four that you've got to pay attention to if you're trying to reach a majority of, uh, you know, majority of users out there. Um, and so, you know, there are some arguments for going the web app route because it's simpler to maintain one code base that applies to all phones, regardless of operating system, all they need is a browser. So this is an interesting just data point along this very long yeah. path that we're, you know, wandering into over the next few years with mobile development. Uh, one other interesting stat was in this article, though, which is that 250 million people use the mobile version of Facebook, meaning the web-based mm -hmm. Facebook, from their phones every month. How many? 250 million. That's almost half of the total user base of Facebook. Is it unique users? The article didn't say. This was a stat from Facebook themselves, but the article was oh. not clear that it was unique. I presume so because it, it wouldn't mean anything right. otherwise. But uh, if that's true, I mean, that's almost half their user base. That's amazing. That's that's a lot. Which is a good – This also that also factors into your considerations of apps, native apps versus a web app, right, is, mm -hmm. is the, the number of people that can use your your application. Uh, so with that many people using the Facebook app, that's impressive, you know, mm. and this is again, the Facebook mobile website. So yeah, I could, I could see even, even, even if it is a big company, I know that having, you know, you essentially have two web teams mm -hmm. and they have to talk to each other. The hard part is right. the communication. It's like, well, we came up with this new feature and then the other team has to be communicated about that feature. Same thing like with Microsoft when doing Word for Windows versus Word for Mac. Obviously, those have been massively divergent now for five years or more. Right. Um, but that's part of the reason why, I think, is that communication process. I would imagine I've not worked on the project, that project specifically, yeah. but you've got to imagine that communication is really difficult. Oh, yeah. It's, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's bad enough within one web team. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think you have uh, one more news item here for us, yeah, Steve. Yeah, and this is... Um, I, I just kind of had to bring this up. It's not mobile related at all, but um, 
Kenneth Bowles uh, gave the closing plenary speech at the IA Summit. What is a plenary? Plenary just means the thing at the end. So it's kind of to say closing, closing plenary. plenary. To closing, That's closing blatantly plenary. obvious now that you say that. But you get a bunch of information architects around the in the room. They're going to try to use the right word, you know. So anyway, he his speech was entitled "The Fall and Rise of User Experience," and he uh, the entire transcript of it is at his website. It's, oh, um, cool. Kenneth.co.uk, and that's C-E-N-N-Y-D-D.co.uk. And we have a link on the show notes. Yeah, we'll that's have a link easier. in the show notes, of course. But um, it really kind of raised a lot of eyebrows at the IA Summit. Really? Because... Controversial? It was partly controversial. It was a bit of a smack in the face to a lot of nice. UXers. It's a great way to end it. <laughs> I know, but it was like a good smack in the face, like a wake oh. up. Oh, okay. Um, and I just have a really couple a couple quick... Uh, quotes from it because you really have to go read the thing and it was a of course like an hour-long speech okay so it's so it's like a, it's i a print it out and pretty like 10 point type it's like 10 pages long okay so it's, it's a read but right. worth if it if you're a ux designer or even anywhere along those lines you should definitely read it but a few a few great quotes is cool he, he starts off kind of talking about how user experience has reached the mainstream and how it, it's kind of becoming accepted it's in the in the blood of even just normal designers people get it mm-hmm. the corporation the ceo's you know, they understand the, the terms, at least. It's out there. But the problem is it's becoming diluted and becoming UX is becoming a mm. synonym for web design. Right. And uh, mm. one of the guys on the comments on his blog said, yeah, I put up a, a wireframe on the on the wall at work. And an engineer walked by and said, oh, I can't wait for that UX to come out. Interesting. <laughs> it's like, uh, no. But, um, <laughs> but then he starts getting a little bit pointed and saying, one of the things he says is, let's be candid. User experience architect is as conceited a job title as the century can boast. Mm-hmm. And essentially we have, we're running the risk of becoming a scene that celebrates itself. And What's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, for a, a group that's supposed to be about the user, <laughs> we're like oh. sitting around like patting ourselves on the head, you know. And so his point was that um, we need to wake up and see where we're going in general and um, consider the ethics of what's going on, what we're saying and what we're doing, not just because a lot of it, instead of it's gone away from just being a good user experience to who I can use my user experience skills to trick someone signing up. Oh, you know, it's kind of like the dark patterns Black hat. That, yeah. that, that we talked about in the past. The dark side of the force. But, um, he said, instead, the world needs f- fewer and better things and things that work beautifully and so forth. And he thinks that what the purpose of UX should be is not to gain gain uh, conversions and not to increase numbers of visitors and so forth, but just to make the world a better place. You know, That's a good goal. On one hand, it's kind of a kind of a pie-in-the-sky, perfect, ideal world, but it's a good thing to go for because if, if all you're doing is... Um, trying to reach metrics or something he said he says that what we're what we do as ux designers is not should not be about reaching metrics it should be about making things better and if all we do is reach metrics then then we just just quit what we're doing right now <laughs> that's fairly so, but you fair. really need to go um you know look at the whole thing he's got a lot of uh, uh good quotes in there um talks about sub being subversive having um Playing the corporate game, but knowing when to subvert it, and what the future might look like for for UX people in general, and 
we need to quit throwing around all these labels and he says that we're all guilty of labelism. You know, are you an IA or a UX designer or an interaction designer or uh-huh. a web designer, a web developer? You know, it's all these words that don't really mean there's, anything. There's so much crossover between many of them. Yeah, yeah, the people, of course, is, specialize in certain right, it's things. Not, it's but... not what you call yourself. It's the work that you do. And that's right. what he's trying to get at is oh. it's, it should be about the work, okay. not about what we call ourselves or how proud are we all are of ourselves, but are we doing good work? Period. Yeah, lots of fair message, I think, you yeah. know, especially I mean, the field is gaining popularity and awareness, as you said. Yeah. That's certainly been my perception. So that uh, makes sense to kind of pull it back and talk about uh, doing doing yeah. things well. But everybody, I mean, at first everybody was like, whoa. I was watching the Twitter stream you yeah. know, during the conference and it was like, whoa, what's he saying? And oh, I love <laughs> how he said this. But Overall, it was very positively received. I think it was kind of a good thing for a lot of folks to hear. Huh, so Very cool. I look forward to uh, reading that. Let's go on to our uh, feature of the day, the interview with Josh Clark. Awesome. Yeah, so um, I got a chance to sit down with Josh Clark for a few minutes. It's about a 17-minute interview with him at the IA Summit. And forgive the you know the occasional tinkling of things in the background because there's no place. You're in the restroom recording. <laughs> <laughs> hey, watch out! There's no place you know completely private and quiet when you're at a conference. conference. Yeah. So, um, but he had a lot of great things to say. We'll go ahead and listen to that now. So I'm here with uh, Josh Clark, and uh, Josh. Yesterday I was part of your, or not yesterday, two days ago actually. It's part of your uh, Tapworthy Mobile Design workshop here at the ISM, which was awesome. Oh, thanks so Thank much. You. Thanks for coming. Yeah, and um, it, it kind of got me wondering, just how, how did you become kind of the mobile design guy, like the expert? <laughs> you know, you've written a, a book about yeah. it, and you have a book about iPhone apps in general. Right. Well, I mean, I, so I should say first, you know, I'm, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm sort of put out there sort of somewhat as an expert, and it's a, it makes me a little bit sheepish sometimes, because this field is so new, right. and there's sort of a question of, you know, can anyone really truly be an expert now? Yeah, so right. my background is, is frankly, it's in, uh, you know, sort of software design and development, which I've been doing for okay. about 15 years, primarily with web stuff, you know. So, uh, but, you know, it's sort of as a visual designer and, and a user experience designer, um, you know, when particularly this new generation of smartphones came out, you know, it's something that I just really threw myself into to sort of think about a lot and particularly thinking about, you know, what are the differences between uh, kind of the desktop and mobile and what is it that makes great mobile experiences? Because I I found sort of my my first reaction as a consumer was just like, wow, I am really attached to this software in a way that I haven't been with the desktop. What is it about sort of the great apps that makes me feel that way. And, right. it, it, and part of it is the form factor of these devices, these very personal devices that you carry with you, changes the nature of the sort of the desktop software. Right. But so I basically sort of wanted to take all of the practice that I had done, you know, sort of on the desktop, and sort of look at, you know, what what is it that is creating this kind of almost affection for software, and what are the things that create great experiences? Um, and so sort of went from there and sort of shared a lot of my observations. And I think a lot of people happily have found it useful. Yeah. One thing I should mention, I, I, I don't pretend that any of the things that I say in my book Tapworthy or sort of in doing this other stuff uh, is really much more than common sense. It's something that sort of seems evident when it's pointed out, right. but something that, uh, like a lot of things, just you sort of don't necessarily think about. So it's um, things that I've tried to sort of find evidence to sort of back 
intuition that, that I think makes yeah. sense for a lot of people. And I've, I've, I've even heard people describe the, the practice of user experience design in general it's just kind of advanced common sense. Yeah, that's right, and I believe that's. Uh, do I have it right? I think it's Steve Krug's. Yes, the name is Steve Krug's it. company. You that's know, right. of, of that's the, right. that don't make me think. I, I, knew, I, I knew I heard that someplace. Yeah, that's um, great. Yeah, and I, I, you mentioned in the, in your workshop about how about this whole idea of being personal, hmm. and you know, when when you have something that you hold in your hand that's with you all the time is a very personal thing. What what changes about the software you develop? Not just the UI, but the the kinds of things that you develop or should develop when it's such a personal thing? Yeah. <clears throat> well, a couple of things. I mean, you know, I think that we, when I'm talking about sort of this thing that sort of mobile software is more personal, there's been a shift, I think, in perception toward software that the web sort of began with kind of these sort of very personable kind of websites mm -hmm. to now sort of uh, mobile, I think, is really bringing this home. That we used to think of software as being just for tools. You know, right. that this was like, we used it as sort of this gray blob of stuff on our screen to do all the dumb stuff we got to do. Right. Uh, right. And that's sort of been, you know, we, we, and, and while sort of geeks and young people would turn to software for entertainment sometimes for games, it's very new for the mainstream. Mm -hmm. You know, so that, not, and now when you, you, you um, look at how people perceive um, uh, uh, apps, particularly software apps, it's not so much as, or uh, mobile apps, mm -hmm. it's not so much about uh, tools and doing as it is often about sort of content and media, sort of more kind of consumption. And I, I don't say that there aren't tools. I mean, obviously, we're using email. We're doing to-do lists. We're doing all that sort right. of doing. But we're also turning to these devices for entertainment, for those moments when we're bored, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that is something that, you know, there's a lot of focus often on, on this it's sort of a myth and maybe even a little bit of a cliche about the mobile context, that it's always rushed and always on the go. And that's true sometimes. What you yeah, want that's to what you hear all the time. Yeah. Is it, it's all, everything has to be fast. Right, and, and that is true that, that that is one mobile context, right? right. Where you are uh, doing something quickly, so the, the interface needs to be focused and really optimized mm -hmm. for the task at hand. But also, you got to remember that mobile is not just dashing through the airport. It's also sitting on the couch or, 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 or hanging out in your kitchen. And, you know, it's, you've got like an hour before bed and you're just dinking around on your phone, you know. And so in those cases, you actually want to encourage sort of slower, more leisurely exploration of data. Uh, you know, it, it, of, it, when I say data, I mean it could be anything, right? E-books, e you know, news readers, whatever. But games, obviously, and some people, we, we, we tend to play more things. But also, if you're thinking about, for example, some sort of um, app that, that tracks personal data, you know, say it's a to-do list or, or a, um, an exercise log or something like that, um, that's something that you want to make it really easy to get information in and out of, that you do that efficiency. But then also there are opportunities to sort of really explore that stuff, right? I mean, that's sort of like, this is your story, where you've been, where you'd like to go. Mm -hmm. your, and, and when you sort of can present statistics that you can kind of enjoy and spend a little bit of time with, yeah. um, there are, that, that's an opportunity for exploration that, again, while you might not necessarily think of that as sort of being sort of charming, you know, and sort of as it seems sort of like dry statistical stuff, these are the kinds of things that make the device personal. It's like, wow, look how much this thing knows about me. Right. Um, and sort of thinking about that as you design uh, as sort of one piece. But also there's sort of something about, there's a certain charm. All of the mobile platforms have a certain look and feel uh, and that um, we become somewhat attached to, you know, and that sort of the, the apps that you 
that you have on your phone sort of seem to say as much about you as the stuff you carry in your bag or, or the, the bobbleheads on your desk, right? It's uh, so that, that there's sort of something that that's a, there's a little bit of style and charm to the interface too, that it's not just efficiency, but sort of what's the personality of your app because you're really talking about sort of, it's odd to talk about emotional connection to software, but I think that's sort of really what we're seeing. We're really charmed by right. these apps and sort of thinking about that, what personality do you want to have is sort of a, an important piece that maybe the tool makers of yesteryear for software um, didn't necessarily have to think about where efficiency and sort of getting the job done was most important. Yeah, we talk a lot about in user experience about personas for who we're designing for, but this this idea is more of a a kind of a persona of your app itself. I love it. That's a great right. way to put it. That's right. I mean, because, you, you know, I mean, I think that's that's a lot of the way that people sort of experience it. And, and, and efficiency and business-like is a personality, too, and that's legit, yeah. too. I mean, yeah. it, it, you know, so that so that can still, I don't mean that everything has to be cute and adorable, although that's okay, too. You know, it's sort of what is the personality that you're trying to get across is a, sort of an important thing to think about when you're sort of designing the interface and the feel of the of an app. And I think I think that's starting to leak out into other types of software, too. I mean, it's a very strong impulse on mobile, but I think you, you, you've, you've seen that sort of before on, on the web, you know, Flickr with its sort of cute greetings. There's a real personality to Flickr. The web kind of really sort of started that, and I think it's even stronger on mobile, and it's now coming back to kind of desktop software. Right. So what, in, in, in your book, Tapworthy, you, you talk, you know, you cover the, all the bases, obviously. Give me a couple, like, high-level directions to go. Say say I'm a, like, listen, listeners to our podcast are both web designers and application developers and so forth. So where would you start if I'm, t- say I'm taking a website to make it a little more narrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I have a website and I need to make mobile version of website, yeah. you know, what, what are the couple directions I could take? There are two things that I think are really new to mobile that it's sort of not necessarily obvious to yeah. people who are coming from a desktop environment. One is thinking about this idea of context that we're talking about. And context isn't necessarily the right word exactly so much as intent. You know, it's like intent. Why, you know, when, when you're, why would you be using this in a non-traditional computing environment? What are the mobile use cases? You know, and again, so I, I sort of mentioned a couple of mindsets that are there, which is sort of that micro-tasking, quick dashes of activity. That's sort of one mindset for why you use an app. Another one that I mentioned was the sort of, I'm bored, you know, entertain me, um, give me something to do during this downtime, which sort of might seem kind of at odds to microtasking, because one is about doing things quickly, and another one is sort of slowing down and, and enjoying that. And then the, the, the third one is, is, is more, I'm local, you know, tell me what's around me, help me get something done with the sensors that these things are loaded down with. Um, uh, so sort of thinking about sort of those mindsets of tell me what's, what's around me or what's even right in front of me uh, in the case of I'm local. And sort of, you know, and thinking about, again, why, what makes this app mobile? That's sort of like a really important thing to sort of think about specific use cases and really clear focus. Um, one thing that, that I think is a problem, though, as you sort of develop focus and try to really get a, a clear sense of, of what, how people are going to be use, using your app is not to sort of pare it down too much. There's, mm. it, it's okay for apps to sort of have, complex, have complexity behind them as long as you sort of reveal that in sort of a just-in-time 
right manner, that you don't sort of overload people right away. You let them sort of ask questions in a sense of your app, like, well, how do I do this? Well, you sort of take them to a new screen that sort of does things. That's sort of more about managing complexity than eliminating it. I think that, that you see a lot of mobile apps and websites, for example, that don't do as much as their desktop counterparts do. All the time. Right? Where, where you're just like, oh, you know, you're on the website and you're like, I give up. I'm going to go down to the footer and find that link that says, <laughs> yeah. show me the desktop the link? version. Right? right. So one thing that's important is to think about that it's not so much about removing content or features from a desktop thing to make it mobile. Um, although that, that might be the case. I mean, there might be very well be stuff on the desktop that's just crap anyway that you should get rid of from all sites. It's really sort of more about prioritizing that information. I believe sort of thematically you should be presenting the same content to everybody, making it available anyway, mm -hmm. thematically, to all devices. It's a, sort of a question sometimes of presentation yeah. or priority. All right, so, so that's one thing, sort of thinking about, well, you know, what are, how are people going to use this? And the second piece is really one of ergonomics. You know, it's, it's unlike the desktop, you are designing an interface that's meant to be worked with hands and fingers. Mm -hmm. And that means that, that, that there are, are really ergonomics at work here. It's sort of how does it feel in your hand? What, where should the buttons go to sort of, um, A, be comfortable, and B, make sure that the, your primary buttons aren't like at the top of the screen where your hand is going to be covering the screen the whole time. But that's where we put stuff in websites right. is at the top. Exactly. Where it, where it sort of makes visual sense. Right. And for large screens uh, where you don't have to touch, you know, sort of the visual hierarchy is at the top. On smaller screens where you can kind of take everything in and all at once, that sort of notion of visual hierarchy isn't as important. You're not going to miss stuff at the bottom of the screen. And in fact, you put buttons and controls, yeah, at the bottom, the main navigation. Sort of, you see the, the, the hardware buttons on Android are at the bottom. Uh, and of course, sort of an, on iOS, you see these, the, the main navigation floats down to the bottom. Uh, the, uh, and, and, and this is something that's, that we inherit from industrial design. I mean, this is always the way the physical devices work. Controls at the bottom where your fingers won't get in the way. Mm -hmm. And the display at the top. Look at your iPod. Look at your, uh, you know, your... And the calculator. Your calculator, <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, if you had the buttons at the top, yeah. you'd always be like, God damn it, I can't see what my calculation is. <laughs> right. So sort of looking at sort of solved problems um, from the industrial design world is a great way to think about this because it's not all that different. You look at these devices and they're just blank slates you impose the interface onto them. It's all about the software. And if you sort of imagine that these were physical buttons that you were putting on, you know, how would you want those to feel? It's, it's, it would require sort of a different mindset there. And I know you're working on a, a book on uh, tablet design. That's right. And it'll, probably, it'll focus on the iPad, sort of the lens the iPad, of that. Okay. So w say a few things about that, how that's different. Well, you know, it, so it's, it's funny that, you know, obviously sort of, so in Tapworthy sort of, looks at sort of mobile generally, but sort of, again, through the lens of, I, of iPhone. Uh, and, and the book came out, uh, or the, the iPad was announced sort of when I was about midway through the book. And, I was, and, and my assumption was like, oh, you know, I, I will address it. I will have like a chapter or two, and I'll sort of mention it throughout. And then, you know, when I really, um, after I sort of saw the demo and really started thinking about it and, and got an iPad in my hands eventually, I sort of really realized, wow, this is a really entirely different animal. You know, so while it looks the same, obviously it runs the same operating it. system, yeah. it's got a touch screen. And of course, you know, so many people said, oh, what's the big deal? It's, it's just a, a big, big iPhone. It's a big iPhone. <laughs> right. The thing I'm fond of saying is, you know, uh, uh, an iPad is a big iPhone in the same way that a swimming pool is like a big bathtub. I mean, you know, <laughs> That's a good point. They're similar. It's like it's, they, they look the same, but wow, the form of them and the context of them encourage completely yeah. different uses, right? Um, so, and that's the thing. You know, so we were talking about ergonomics now. 
you know, you have to hold this thing with two hands pretty much to use it. You almost have to use it sitting down. That means it's not really sort of a, a mobile device. You know, Zuckerberg kind of caught some flack at one point or raised some eyebrows anyway when he said, iPad's not mobile. You know, sort of backtracked a little bit from it, you know, sort of explaining that why he didn't feel like they needed to create a separate experience for it as they did with mobile. Um, because it is a different context. It's a more rest, restful, longer sessions, larger screen, sort of similar to that. Um, and then also, yeah, is, is sort of so that ergonomic thing also sort of drives a different set of mindsets. You know, is that it's a calmer, more contemplative thing. So different, you're, you're using it in different places with a different sort of state of mind and with very different ergonomics. And what it means is that you have to have a very different design. Mm. Um, and again, you know, I I, I think that um, it's good, especially if you're thinking about sort of web to sort of, for all these devices, think about how do we provide the same kind of content and, and tools, because it's very difficult to, to guess intent just from context, especially just from device context. Right. So uh, making sure that sort of as much as possible is available, but thinking carefully about what should we sort of float to the top, what's, gonna be, what's likely to be the priority for mobile versus tablet versus desktop. Um, we're, we're, we're going into a place where... This, it seems a little overwhelming right now that we have all of these different platforms, all these different devices. Right. Jesus, what are we going to do? And, you know, I've got to say, I really think this is the tip of the iceberg. I think that we are going to a place where we as designers and developers are going to be creating a whole bunch of sort of thin clients for all kinds of different devices sort of tailor fit to that those things whether that's through sort of a little bit of CSS to make it sort of better for the device or or, or wholly new kind of uh, native apps for separate devices that we're going to be de designing all kinds of different front ends uh, more and more and more of them that sort of hopefully talk to kind of a common smart back end you know so, yeah. so uh, that's an interesting way to look at it yeah, yeah you know it's uh, I think uh, I saw a great talk at uh, South by Southwest um, by uh, a fellow named Brand from uh, from NPR and uh he, uh, with a, from the technical side, and he, you know, great explanation of sort of how their content management system has enabled them to be very nimble in terms of building lots of mobile apps mm -hmm. quickly. That they have this really sort of strong, neutral API that goes mm -hmm. out to all kinds of different devices and formats. The same, you know, the, their website talks to the API, all their mobile apps talk to the API, all of the uh, member stations get their data through the API, their, their news wow, feeds. It's just sort of like one sort of wellspring of content that uh, can feed all these devices. They don't have to sort of screw around with the data anymore. The problem right. is solved. And so yeah. now it's a matter of being like, well, let's sort of put a front end on this. It's right for this device and context. And I think that that's how we have to think about it is, you know, what is the, con the context, both in terms of um, the physical device as well as the intent that I was sort of saying, you know, what are people going to want to do with, with these things? What, who are we building this for and why? That right. um, I think that we're going to be, we have our work cut out for us the next several years as designers. <laughs> uh, one last question, I'll let you go. Um, our our, our um, podcast is called Einstein and Sock Monkey. Yeah. And so we always try to kind of ask folks, who do you identify with more, Einstein or Sock Monkeys <laughs> and why? It's oh, a very geez. important question. Well, right. No, it's true. I mean, I, <laughs> and neither of them could tie, can tie their shoes, so it's a, it's a tricky thing. <laughs> well, geez, I, I mean, I, I, I can't say that I, I believe that I'm any kind of Einstein, and so I, I suppose that I'm more sock monkey, which, which is to sort of say that it's sort of uh, something that uh, maybe uh, 
is a bit flexible and, and playful. <laughs> okay. You know, it's sort of like, you know, if I'm missing a sock, I can put my monkey on my foot. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to think that I'm sort of uh, uh, flexible and a little bit playful in terms of the way that I see the world. Uh, not that Einstein wasn't, but I'm probably, yeah. I'm probably more sock monkey. Right? Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks. And when, does, when is your book expected? Oh, Do you that have any a, idea? You know, that's exactly what my editors would like to know. <laughs> it's, it's very early days. I'm sort of just going to okay, start it. So cool. I, I, would, I would love for it to be out in sort of fall or early winter, but, but we'll see what happens. Cool. Well, we'll, uh, we'll definitely get a copy. Okay. Or 12. <laughs> I'm looking All forward right. to it, too. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> my pleasure. Okay. So another big thanks to Josh Clark for sitting down with the interview, uh, for an interview with me. And I thought he had some great things to say. Uh, a lot of the stuff I had heard before, but partly, you know, I just had a whole day with the guy. Right? Yeah, exactly. But, um, uh, what 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 were your, some of your thoughts about it? Um, it, it was a, it was a good interview for sure, and uh, there's so many thoughts that it sparked because it you know touched on some of the things that I've been reading about and heard at the sure. seminar um, at an event in part with Luke. Um, and it's hard after hearing one. Yeah, I should have taken notes during the interview, really, to uh, to pull out a couple of points because there are definitely a few things that uh, that spoke to me. What was the metaphor he made? I thought that was pretty good. Um, oh, a bathtub and a swimming pool. A yeah. swimming pool is not a big bathtub. Um, yeah, exactly. Comparing the iPad to the iPhone. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a very interesting metaphor and true. Right? There's yeah. different uses. Different. It's similar technology, same OS. You can run the same apps, but. I thought the whole, in general, what he was saying about the context of it, mm-hmm. um, and I I noticed this from from the the workshop as well as what he was saying in this interview. He doesn't focus so much on the technology differences and display differences as per se. That's good. But I he, think. he he focuses a lot on the context of use. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're using a mobile device, it's a lot more personal in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, so you have a, this connection to your phone. You know, it's with you all the time, <laughs> right? And uh, so, therefore, the way you interact with the stuff is different. And whether that is on the move, then that context is I got to get something fast, get in, and get out of the app fast. Uh, and that's like a mobile check-in thing for a uh, like a, your airplane or something. Right. You're running to the airport. You got to work it with one finger and so forth. And um, then versus the iPad, where it's more restful and you're just kind of sitting there going through some things. You're not going to be running through the airport with your iPad trying to check into your plane. Right. Uh, right. So I thought I liked what he had to say about that, and as well as at the, the personas of your app. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thinking about that when you're designing it and what makes something mobile. You know, Think about what is different now that I'm here in the mobile world. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a big key. Um, is the context piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so from the things that I went through in my talk and from what you've been talking about so far, I mean, that's that's one thing I think that has been common and I think that we all need to be keeping in mind. You know, so what's the difference between a mobile site and a, and a um, regular website that you can use on a laptop or a desktop or something like that or iPad versus iPhone uh, or just handset um, is the context, right? And right. so... so one of the things that Luke, I had heard a talk by Luke Robluski last year, and his title, his talk was titled "Mobile First," and he kind of still makes that point that one way to consider designing a new site is to design the mobile site first, mm-hmm. um, because that really forces you to cut to the chase and look at what are the essentials. But you think from a completely different perspective too, 
right? It's a, it's very tricky to take a regular website and try to cut things out to make it useful for mobile. You know, that might be what you have to do based on budget or something, but it's really not the ideal way to do it. Right. You'd like to think about, okay, how would a mobile user use my website on their phone? You know, what's going to matter to them? So for example, um, there's so many common examples. I'd like to think of something a little bit different, but, um, yeah, I'd go with the common answer. Go with the common one anyway. <laughs> uh, well, let, let's take a store a store that sells stuff that people might register for a bridal registry. Let's okay. look at that, right? Um, if they're mobile, they're probably not going to be looking through bunches of products and picking items to put on that list that they want to buy for that person, right? Probably they're probably more likely wanting to know where's the address for this thing because I'm on my way to go pick up the stuff that I bought online right? Um, or something like that. Um, so that might be one thing. Or a, cl- uh, a store that does cl- uh, some kind of shop that does classes of some sort, right? At home, I need to look through the whole catalog of classes and be able to compare and, you know, what's the cost and figure out. Now, not that people wouldn't sign up for a class on a mobile device. They probably would. But if I'm mobile, maybe I, again, maybe I, I forgot what time my class started tonight. Mm-hmm. And that was going to be more important than when I'm sitting at home. So figuring out the importance of information, um, you know, what needs to be there in the hierarchies could be very different. Yeah, yeah, it all comes down to priority. And we talk a lot about that in, in UX design in general. What should the What's the priority for the user? <clears throat> and I, I really like Luke's approach as far as mobile first. Mm-hmm. Design the mobile site and then expand it from there because mm-hmm. then the focus is on the priority. Right. And I actually use that approach. I'm designing a, a UI for at, at work. And so I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna do the Luke way. Cool. <laughs> so cool. I, I worked up the mobile experience, and it actually really did help me focus a little bit. Um, but we you do need to back up and and look at at the differences because priorities on the mobile aren't always the same priorities. Exactly what you're just saying. Mm-hmm. So it's good to do that to to focus a little bit, but then you have to kind of rethink it again. Don't just think, oh, that's the biggest things. Period. Right. So it's it's always it's a, a it's not a uh, you know plug in the formula and you're done. Right, it's not formulaic. I think each business case needs to be looked at on its own merits. Totally. Um, yeah, for what needs to be on the mobile site. Um, and you know, there was an interesting discussion uh, at, at Luke's conference, uh, Luke's workshop about um, does the mobile site and you know how similar did the mobile site and the native site, the the regular website have to be? Mm. Um, that there were several people complaining, and I, I saw some blog posts about this prior to the conference too. Several people were complaining that it's really annoying to have a view full site button on the mobile site because people are starting to feel gypped. They're like, okay, I'm on the mobile site, and now why can't I get to all the content? You know, why are you forcing me to click on a button that says view the whole site? And it's an interesting point. I mean, there's no clear answer here necessarily, but it's a really interesting point to think about. Um, you know, right now we have a divergent world. And in a big way, I think it's similar to when the web first became the web and that, you know, print designers are moving over to web and everybody's saying, well, the web is not print, it's different. And that that's totally true, right? I think we all believe that now. And mobile, I think, is similar in that way. And so we have this kind of divergence where we have websites and mobile websites and Anyway, it's just I think it's a really interesting thing to think about of is there a point in some kind con- you know certainly I'm sure there's some cases where those two sites should have the same content maybe presented differently um, 
for sure. Oh, yeah. But, you know, does that make sense? Or does that not make sense at all? And the mobile site is its own thing, and the regular website always has more features, or well, frequently I'm, does. There, there are many times when I'm thankful for that little button. That, yeah, you know, because <laughs> me too. Going down to the Hyatt for the IA Summit in Denver, it was at the Hyatt Regency, I needed to park in the park somewhere. Right. I'd not been there before, and I wasn't sure where, where to park. So I am... You know, I, before I go down, I'm sitting in my car, not while I'm driving, <laughs> and I, I pull up the Hyatt website, and it sends me immediately to kind of generic-looking mobile website with the, like, five big wide buttons. Right. That, you know, like, uh, uh, reserve a room, contact us, and stuff. I couldn't find anything about parking. Wow. I'm thinking, a person who's mobile... That is a perfect example of context and thinking got, through what matters. I'm mobile. I want to know where to park. Exactly. And I, so I had to scroll to the bottom and hit the view full, full site, site. And I had to zoom in. Could you find it there? The, I finally did, yeah. Wow. I had to pinch out, you know... Half an hour and, later. Oh, yeah, it was a pain. But I found <laughs> it eventually, and it's like, I'll just park in the basement. Wow. But, so, you know, something like that, I'm glad they have it. Um but well, but if, but I would argue that's a failure of the information architects of the mobile site. It's it is. It's if there's a failure, I want the button. Right, right. But, and I, I I would still uh, err towards always having access to that for whatever reason mm-hmm. if you want. Well, I certainly I certainly think at this stage of the of this development cycle that if your full blown website has a lot more features or even a few more features than the mobile site, yes, I think, uh, this is my off-the-cuff opinion, it makes sense for the reasons that you said, because right. maybe you need to get there. And I do that all the time with um, Gmail. So I do Gmail on my iPhone through the Safari interface to to Google Apps. I don't use their application. I actually use the website. Right. Um, but every now and then, there's something I can't do on there that I need the full site for. Now, yes. it's really hard to use on the iPhone because it's so small. you got to pinch and zoom and zoom <laughs> yeah, and zoom yeah, and scroll yeah. around. It's, but you get to that one feature that you needed. And it's not frequent. It's maybe half a percent of the time that I ever need to do that. But I am thankful that the button's there. Right. And wh- one last thing I wanted to mention about what Josh was saying is we often think about the, the number of features to, to leave or keep in or out. And we kind of get the idea of bigger touch points for our fingers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I liked his points um, partly in the workshop and also what he said of where these controls should be. Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't really thought about that before because normal website, put it at the top. Right. Because it's what you see first. But on mobile, you're holding on it mobile. in your hand and you're touching it with your thumb if you're one-handed. Right. And, and what's accessible thumbs. to – yeah, and what's accessible to your thumbs. Right. And The bottom part of the, the screen. Uh, <laughs> In his slides, and I think it's in his book as well, he shows kind of the hot spots uh-huh, yeah. of where you should expect a person to be able to click. Right. And, and it's and not he, the top. <laughs> it's not, on iPad, it's the top corners because uh, that's how you hold it. But on my phone, hmm. it's the bottom corners. Right. And they're kind of the opposite corner. Like the bottom left corner is where the, your right thumb can get easiest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so don't put the delete button there mm-hmm, <laughs> and, uh, and so right. forth. Right. So, you know, keeping an idea, uh, this this idea of it's a different world completely. It's not just shrink it and put it on your right. iPhone. Yep, that's a good uh, good overall message, I think. It's a different world. Think about context. And um, it'd be really fun at some point in the podcast if we had a case study or two of sites that we either we've worked on or something where great. we could talk about the decisions that went into the differences between the you know the mobile versus the full site. I think that'd be really interesting. Sure. I'm excited because it's a whole new area to explore and um, and everything really is going, everything really is going mobile. I mean, 
Yeah, a couple of quick stats just to update because um, I, ha- I had shared a stat I think on a previous episode about uh, in 2009, and I don't have the reference to it, but I can post a link to the show notes. There was a prediction by a big market research company that in 2012, so next year, smartphone shipments or sales would exceed PC and laptop sales. So that was two years ago. They predicted that would happen in 2012. Well, that already happened fourth quarter of 2010. So it happened two years early. And one of the fallouts is there's a measured 20% drop in usage of PCs between 2008 and 2010. Wow. That's substantial. Um, And a couple other quick stats here caught my eye in Luke's talk. Uh, One was that 50% of mobile e-commerce takes place on eBay. Yeah. On one place. Yes. And the biggest internet purchase ever was on eBay, a $500,000 airplane that somebody bought with their iPhone, (laughs) (laughs) which is awesome. Uh, And the other interesting stat is, you know, it's a $10 billion industry. And normally when any business gets that big or an industry gets that big, growth is generally flat. Mm -hmm. You know, that's been our historical experience in the world to date. And in the third quarter of 2010, which is, I guess, most recently had stats for, there was a 96% increase in mobile sales, and prices of handsets are still dropping. So this is nuts. Wow. You know, growth rates like that of industries this large have never been seen. So that is just astounding that, you know, we ain't seen nothing yet. No. And, and nobody knows where this is going as part of the picture, I think. This has never happened before. So this is this is a sea change. Yeah, we don't know where it's going, but I, I am I feel confident in saying that if you're not doing something with mobile, you're missing out big time. Exactly. Well, I would say now is the time to get in, and if you get in now, I think you'd be well positioned as this continues to grow. Right. Because you know most web design shops are not doing this, uh, at least not in a in a really great way. Right. It's, uh, it's not so much you know some things you need years of experience to be the expert, mm-hmm. but you can be an expert with mobile app design or mobile web design well, whatever, start now build the experience just by yeah, yeah just by doing a few websites and you're you at this point you're at the top else. of the heap right? exactly now is the time <laughs> <laughs> wait a few years everybody's past you and so we've already waited a couple so right. wait too much longer yeah time to get moving great well thanks for sharing that interview that was yeah, uh, yeah, that was really good and i'm really looking forward to actually reading josh's book uh luke mentioned his book is uh, one of the good books on great books on mobile so yeah Cool. Look forward to checking it out. And Luke has a book coming out this summer, oh, so does. maybe we can interview him this summer. That'd be oh, awesome. Yeah, that'd be fun. A little word about our sponsor for the podcast. Um, for listeners of Einstein and Sock Monkey, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial to give everybody a chance to check out their service. And I'm assuming that there still are a few people who haven't. Um, everybody I talk to <laughs> is a subscriber. Is a subscriber. I'm sure there are people who aren't subscribers who could take advantage of this great oh, offer. Most likely, of course they can. Um, and I wanted to give it an audible pick of the week. Um, I just finished this book, a great book called Physics of the Impossible by Michio Kaku. I don't know if you've have you read the book. I have not read the book, Mister Physics Man over here. Yeah, no, I haven't. It's tell it's, me about that. It's a lot of it's a lot of fun. He talks about things that are mostly in sci-fi and fantasy. That oh. are they actually impossible or are they may be possible at some point in the future? So cool. he has three levels of impossibility. Um, level one uh, is it's physically, according to the laws of physics, it's possible to do this, but our technology isn't there yet. Right. Maybe in 100 years. Okay. That okay. makes sense. 
And that includes things like invisibility cloaks and transportation, possibly. And a lot of things that you wouldn't expect to be possible. (laughs) For invisibility, we're already doing it with certain wavelengths of light, making things completely invisible. So the only problem is when you're inside an invisibility cloak, you can't see out. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little bit of functionality there. And then level two is it's physically possible according to the laws of physics, but... We would have to, it's going to be like 200,000 years away in our future. So it's like way far away. And then the level three is it's right out. It's never going to happen. Okay. Things like a perpetual motion machine just just doesn't work with the laws of physics. So, but there's a lot of really cool stuff in there. Um, Michio Kaki has another book out called The Physics of the Future, which is kind of probably some of the same stuff. I haven't read it yet, but great book. It's a good reader. Um, which is something always important to check on Audible is to uh, house the reader. Yes, uh, exactly. Otherwise, you get really sick of the book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Trust definitely. Um, so to download your free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com slash Einstein. And just to point out, make it clear, that's a different URL than before. Yes, They've it is. They've changed their URL. So it is audibletrial.com forward slash Einstein. Yeah, and they are now part of, an, of Amazon.com. They were purchased by Amazon, so I did not realize that. You can that. log in with your Amazon account. Wow! And uh, huh. hook it together. And I have a Kindle. I got a Kindle for for Christmas, and I tied in my Amazon account with my Audible account, and so now I can download Kindle, anything off Audible onto my Kindle and listen to it there as well. Nice. So I've got my entire Audible thing on Kindle and my iPad, my iPhone. Wow! My and Amazon is like gobbling up the universe out there it's like google and amazon i could be the only ones I left know. <laughs> I, have a, I have a quick story which was while i was in seattle zappos was having a meetup they did their first ever coding challenge which was basically facebook style eight laptops in the bar having people drink and trying to do coding exercises <laughs> <laughs> uh, it wasn't quite out of wow. control but I, this this uh meetup was right across the street from one of the aea parties so i went early and met Tony Shea, um, who wrote really? Delivering Happiness. And he was the basically owner. sitting there by himself. They had just had a board meeting with Amazon because that's where Amazon's based. So the whole executive team of five guys from Zappos was there. And um, so, yeah, I chatted with Tony for like 10 minutes just by myself. It was crazy. <laughs> He's a very wow. approachable guy. But I asked him at the end uh, what is making him excited now because he's been at Zappos for more than 10 years now. Yeah. Um, and he said it changes all the time, which makes sense. But his current passion is uh, they are trying to down- transform downtown Las Vegas into something like Austin. That would be a hit place for restaurants, music venues, and really? all of this. So that's his current passion. And huh. uh, I would say stay tuned because that could happen. That would be really fun. the thing that you do when you have more money than you know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I asked him, like, how are you going to do this? And, and it's, you know – it's actually everybody in Zappos getting on board with this and everybody doing their piece of encouraging businesses oh, to right, come. They're, based in, in, they're in Las Vegas, Vegas now. Right. Correct. And not the strip, of course, but downtown. Right. Yeah. Right. right. But that'd be, I think that'd be awesome. I think it's a cool vision too. I mean, so they, they picked the place to move and now they're going to transfer, want to transform the place where they are living. That's, that's cool. Yeah. That's yeah, really neat. Great things about Zappos. Yes. About, you know, it's like the best so place to work. That and, would be my recommended audiobook. I just I did finish uh in the last since our last episode, I did finish reading or listening to um uh Delivering Happiness on yeah. audiobook and it is incredible. Really? So, I I definitely I have a couple credits so I've got to Oh, definitely check it out. It's uh, I would say almost anybody would enjoy it cuz it's a great story. And uh, if you're a business owner, it's like a must read because it's they do things so differently and it's really 
yeah. inspiring to understand why. And like a lot of what they do is totally doable. Like we could do a lot of those things in our own businesses and really make a difference. Awesome. So yeah. Cool. Totally. So speaking about books, I want to talk about our book club for just a moment. Uh, so next episode, on episode eight, we're going to discover, discover, <laughs> we're going to um, talk about, discuss, I think is the word I was hunting for. Use <laughs> my words. Uh, Undercover User Experience Design by Kenneth Bowles. And so uh, if you have been following our podcast, you had fair warning, but two weeks from now, we'll be uh, recording the next podcast and we'll be discussing that book. So we would love for you to go to our website, which is EinsteinAndSockMonkey.com and leave a comment on our blog of something you enjoyed about the book or a question you have, uh, something like that. It uh, looks highly likely that we'll have Kenneth on the line to interview him. Yeah, I talked to him at the summit and he said he would love to Skype in with us and chat about the book. So... I, I will say if if for some reason we have to push that out yeah, to, it could to his schedule later, yeah. We might do it like the ninth episode or something. Sure. But absolutely. We're all flexible here. Exactly. But the point being, get your comments into the blog in the next two weeks, please. And if you have questions for uh, Kenneth, we'll ask those to him on the air. So yeah. um uh check out the book, give it a skim or a read and uh leave some comments. Thanks. Yeah, and uh undercoverux.com is the site and you can get it on Amazon. It's twenty bucks for the printed version. Or Kindle version is 15, so it's really not a nice, okay. it's, it's a good deal. So, on to blog picks. So, Steve and I each have one, and uh, mine this episode is typographica.com. So, that's uh, typographica, sorry, dot org. I misspoke. Um, we'll have the link in the show notes. And it's a great, great blog um, about typography on the web specifically uh web typography yeah web typography oh. uh so it's a really interesting blog they have great information about how typefaces work on the web um anyway very here's just a few uh uh related articles here so the web font revolution is over let the evolution begin uh what else here uh, stanley kubrick fan of futura <laughs> Who would have guessed? <laughs> Veer says, I like Feature. I mean. Yeah. Veer says, script fonts always sell better. Uh, where are the women in type design? And the uh, the most recent post was called Cure for the Common Font, a web designer's introduction to typeface selection. And it's actually a recording of a one-hour session from South by Southwest just a couple weeks ago. Uh, that included the author Stephen Coles, Frank Chimero, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, Tiffany Wardle, and Jason Santa Maria. And they all have some very interesting points. There's really good discussion. So I highly recommend listening to that one hour. It's about a half hour presentation, half hour Q&A. Really good. And then go to the website link and just check out the post because um, if you're into web typography, they have a ton of links for um, resources and books and web font providers. Um, Really good stuff. And based on um, a number of things, I recently gave a presentation on web font services, and I'll probably throw a link in the show notes to that uh, to the slides, which I have up on SlideShare, and I go through um, uh, the web font service providers, uh, a number of them, not all of them, but I go through four examples and how to set that up and use web font, you know, all these great fonts on your website. So we are no longer constrained to the, uh, you know, the 15 old web-safe fonts from right. the last millennium. We now have literally thousands of fonts that are really easy to use for very low cost and in some cases free uh, on your websites. And they work on mobile devices and iPads and everything. Yeah, it's just great. That's great. 
So anyway, great blog anyway. Uh, if you're into typography, web type, check it out. Cool. Well, my, bo- my blog for the week is likecool.com. I don't know. Have you ever seen this come across the site? I have site? not. Uh-uh. Um, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Swiss Miss. You mm-hmm. mentioned this yep. like our first podcast. Yep, first I read her blog there. all the time. Yeah. yeah, awesome. She's always coming up with like really cool little items or things on the web or whatever. This is like Swiss Miss except uh, for like if you're a teenage boy. <laughs> 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 Only it's like a lot of – it's more heavy tech-centered or cool images – um, I would say 95% of it's safe for work, so, um, you know, go with caution. But I, every single day, he, he, he actually borrows a lot of his stuff from Swiss Miss. Oh, okay. He gets a lot of his ideas from there, but every single day he's got a lot of different posts, um, and there's some really cool stuff. I'm always coming across something that I'm showing guys at work about, you know, that even sparks us, and it's like a new idea or a new technology or um, just a cool piece of art. Like this one, it, it's a uh, it's a leash for your dog that looks like a gun, <laughs> and so it looks like you're shooting your dog. It's kind of kind of funny. Um, wow. Uh, and uh, anyway, so you'll have to look at it to, yeah, to look really to understand. That out. And there's a lot of different um, uh, categories like car style, home stuff, and gadgets, etc. Cool. So sounds like lightcool dot com. Sounds like a great way to spend an afternoon instead of doing work. Oh, it's Sweet. a great it's a great time waster. <laughs> I just consider it research. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Make you feel better about it. So in closing, uh, we do plan to release every two weeks. So uh, we'll do our best to stick to that and we'll keep you posted. But uh, thank you for – we're so thankful for you uh, listening and, and joining us back with us here on this uh, episode seven. Uh, I want to thank Josh Mulligan for doing the show notes. Yeah, and everybody make sure to visit the website at EinsteinAndSockMonkey.com. And um, follow us on Twitter. It's at Einstein Monkey. Correct. It's and for the podcast. Where can they find you? Uh, my blog, if I will ever update it again. Is, <laughs> you will. <laughs> I will. It's clevercubed.com. And Twitter is also at clevercubed. And you can find me at uh, Ron underscore Z on Twitter. And our uh, website is codegeek.net. And uh, please, subs- if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and, and Rate us, you know, and be honest. I'm not just saying give us five stars, but give us five stars. Uh, you know, be honest. Let us know how we're how we're doing. Because give us five we- stars, <laughs> you will do it. Um, because we really want to know how we can improve and how we can get better, and things you guys want to hear or want to not hear, etc. So, if you're the only one yelling at us, then we we might take your opinion. This is true. So thanks everybody, and we'll see you next time. Einstein and Sock Monkey is sponsored by CodeGeek.net, a full-service web design and development agency, and CleverCubed.com, providing user experience design, usability testing, and information architecture, and presented by Ron Zazadinsky and Steve Martin. Music provided by the band Black Lab. Find them at BlackLabWorld.com. Yeah.